Hello everyone and thank you so much for joining me on this Textile Talk podcast. My name is Gail Cowley and I'll be your host for this episode. Today I'll be speaking to Kristen Brown who's chatting to me all the way from California, US and is an accomplished author in the embroidery field. To give you some background for Kristen, she began writing books for C&T Publishing in 2011, has authored seven books, designed three sets of embroidery stencils, as well as other embroidery products. Kristen has also written articles for Michael's Arts and Crafts magazine, Threads magazine and Piecework magazine. She first became interested in fibre arts after making clothing for her dolls as a child. Then, from graduating high school, she continued her education at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising in Los Angeles, California, where she graduated with an associate in arts in fashion design. Kristen began her career in the wearable art field in 1986. Her work has been shown in galleries and fashion shows all around the world. In addition, she's been invited to participate in both the Fairfield and Benina fashion shows. Kristen began teaching and presenting her work in 1991 for quilt stores and quilted fibre art guilds on the West Coast. She's been invited to teach nationally for Road to California America Quilters Society and Quilt Festival in Houston. Kristen still continues to be interested in craft and fine art. She experiments and learns all that she can, specifically concentrating on design and the techniques of embroidery, quilting, ribbon work, mixed media and beadwork. Her goal and wish throughout this journey is to continually be surprised, inspired, creative and necessary. Thank you so much for um, agreeing to to come on to the uh, podcast. I know that um, you've had to get up quite early to do this, so my apologies uh, for that. But thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you. And and I'm thrilled to be here. And I wanted to make sure everything was going to be perfect. <laughs> oh, bless. <Sure>. Yes. <laughs> I think we're both quite relieved. It's a podcast, aren't we? And not a yes. video link. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There would have been a bit of spackle probably involved in getting, getting my face to look right. <laughs> So I, I think the first thing that I'd like to sort of ask um, is if you could tell us a little bit about um, the piece that you're currently working on, uh, what your inspiration was for it and what it's made from. So the processes really that you enjoy using. Well, the piece that I was working on uh, was a, a sample from my uh, newest book, Creative Embroidery, Mixing the Old with the New. It was actually um, designed after one of the projects that are in the book. And what I had uh, compiled were um, some little bits of a scalloped edge hanky, and I had four tea napkins that were given to me. 
So I collage pieced those on onto a muslin base. And those then were hand stitched down because with the edges, so you had a finished a hand stitched edge as well as the machine stitched scallop edge. Those were really delicate pieces. So I don't use a machine when I'm doing any kind of collaging like that. And, and I don't want the machine stitches to show. So, so they're uh, yeah. very tiny stitches that I use. And once I had my base put together, then I added in some vintage jacquard ribbon that I had collected and some newer cotton laces. So I, I created areas for the stitching to rest and also areas for the stitching to shine. Some of the tea uh, napkins had some hand embroidered sections in them and they were white and I was using pinks and greens and cream. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make sure those showed. So I did a little stitching around that. And I used um, tatting cotton, which is not a usual stitching medium, but I, I had some leftover from when my mom was a tatter. And so they are finer than a pearl cotton number 12. And they just look nice when you're working with the, the uh, floss and the pearl cotton. And it also has silk ribbon embroidery on it too. So little sections of all of those. So when I went to put it all together, I decided that I didn't want a traditional backing. So I used another tea napkin that was large enough to fit the piece on. And then I uh, was able to use that as my backing for it. And it had a, it hung down a little bit below it with some more embroidery. So it's, it's an unusual piece. And, and mm. I had it hanging from an old, uh, shoe stay. Oh, how interesting. So that, that was kind of fun. Mm, so. I'm sure. How much of it do you plan beforehand? I mean, do you do a, a design that you work to, or is it very much intuitive with the materials as you're going along? When I'm doing something like this, I let the, I let the piece talk to me. I, I let it, I, I look at it and I see where I can add things. So I don't, I don't necessarily plan any of the stitching. I just let that go and flow as I go. When I'm doing a piece that I consider an all over piece, where the design is all embroidery, I, I do start with some idea of where I want to go and what I want to include. But something like this, I let it, I just let it happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I suppose it's obviously a mixture of vintage materials mixed with newer materials yes. and newer techniques. Is, is that quite important to you? On, well, this particular book, uh, it was uh, creative embroidery mixing the old with the new. Mm. And there was a chapter dedicated to what you might find in your stash. So your stash could be new or it could have some older pieces to it. So when I'm when I'm working and, and it's related to that concept, yes, I, I do like to work with older pieces and 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 rescue them and give them new life. You know, somebody made these and you find them at the thrift store and you wonder why somebody would have discarded them. They were so yeah. beautiful, right? So mm. I, I try to give life to something that might just have been forgotten. Yes, I suppose something we perhaps don't always think about, but all of these pieces, all of the 
older embroidery pieces that we see in thrift stores or in vintage stores all had their own life didn't they before we we they came into our lives they all they, had their own stories mm. right they did and and you just uh, you hope that someone will appreciate that they got a new life that they they were um they were rescued yeah yes absolutely even though they're not perhaps in their original form it's still lovely that they're able to create something new i suppose that brings me around to asking um thinking of origins of stitching how did you first begin to embroider did someone teach you was it something that you were just naturally drawn to how did that come about well my mother was self-taught in all of the needle arts she embroidered, she crocheted, she tat, she knitted, and she did needlepoint. And so she was always working on something. And I remember for my birthday one year, I think I was seven, and apparently that's a, a pretty normal range that, that people learn how to work with their hands. I, uh, I was given um, a, a box, a, my little sewing kit, and it had a hoop in it and some embroidery floss and, and some, I think white fabric is probably what she chose. And I just started stitching. So my mom taught me all of the basic stitches and I just continued to stitch. I, I've dabbled in other needle arts, but I love embroidery and not a day goes by that I don't take a stitch. And something that I found when I started experimenting with other types of embroidery, I learned how to, do silk ribbon embroidery, which uses some of the basic embroidery stitches, but you're working with a material that's quite different than thread. You know, the silk ribbons mm -hmm. different to work with. And I was able to introduce my mom uh, into silk ribbon embroidery and she made all of her own greeting cards. So she started and, and she would either embroider or paint the cards. And so she started in doing silk ribbon embroidery for the greeting cards that year. And that was nice. To oh, that, that was lovely yeah. to be able to introduce her to something after she'd introduced you to embroidery. Yeah. It's really nice. Yeah, that was. Yeah. Mm. And this, the silk ribbon embroidery is um, a really interesting art form. How did, how did you come to choose that particular material? Was it something about it that drew you? Or? I believe it was, I, I saw it in um, one of, I think it was one of Judith Montano's earliest books. And she had shown some silk ribbon embroidery stitches. And I believe one of them was the woven rose. And I found it uh, so easy to do. And it was so beautiful. I thought, wow, okay. So this got me interested in working with it and experimenting with the stitches and I I really have enjoyed working with it. And mm. it, at that time it was a lot easier to find in stores. Now you have to go online mm. basically to be able to find it. But but that's okay. We we can do that. We know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think we've all learned, haven't we, over the last couple of years with the pandemic, <laughs> where to get things online. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I've always loved myself about silk ribbon is that it grows quite quickly, doesn't it? Yes, yes. You're able to see your design and so much faster than when you're working with one strand of 
floss, right? Because mm. the, even the two millimeter silk ribbon is a lot more dimensional than just working with uh, cotton thread. Absolutely. It does have a very, because of the silk and, and, and the sheen, the colours are very attractive colours. They're very kind, very vintage really, aren't they? Yes, they're soft. And, and you mm. also have a little bit of, you feel like you're working with something that has some history to it. I know that pearl cotton and floss have history, but this has a little different bit of history. And it's it's so feminine and you it just makes you feel special, I think, mm. working with it. Mm. Absolutely. So what made you decide to work with textiles as opposed to just I don't mean just, but treat them as a hobby? Where did that 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 sort of change come in? Well, I, I started working with textiles because my mom sewed all our own clothes. So we had extra bits of fabric and I had um, her, her best friend, which who we called Aunt Mert, she went to nursing school with her. She had all of her clothes made by a tailor. So she would give us all of the lef leftover bits. Mm -hmm. So that was really how I started was with the leftover bits. And um, we would just just do little tiny projects with that. And um, I think also, like many people my age, I, I had home ec in seventh and eighth grade. And in seventh grade, it was this big stuffed animal. So you learned how to sew, you learned how to stuff, and you learned how to do hand stitching with it. So I think that was, that was the idea behind the gonk. Uh, and so we got to go into that cupboard where my mom had the leftover bits of fabric and choose what we wanted to uh, make our gonk with. Mm -hmm. uh, but in eighth grade, we actually started making clothing. And at the end of the, the year, we had a fashion show where we wore the clothes that we made. So I, of course, being an overachiever, had to make two garments. <laughs> <laughs> and one was a short, a little pair of shorts and a, a blouse. And then the other was a long A-line dress. And I got to end the show with the dress. So mm -hmm. I think the, the camp in me and all of that led me to working with going into wearables because I, I got an applause at the end of the show. So yeah, absolutely. It always helps, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so obviously you then became interested in wearable art. How did your career evolve from there? Well, I, I, well, I started, um, my first job was working in a fabric store and we had to make all of our clothes out of their fabrics. So what what that did was it it also sold their fabrics, but it it got you so that you would were able to help a customer come in with with their pattern and say, "I don't understand you know th these directions or or that type of thing. So we got really familiar with directions and then with the fabrics and really what people were interested in. And uh, there was a woman working with me at the store who was going to the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising that was in LA. And I didn't know what that was. So I got interested in it and I got a, a Cal grant to be able to go there for two years. I have an AA in fashion design and it all kind of went from there. 
though I decided that uh, the fashion industry was a, a little bit more aggressive, I think, than I was really ready for. I had to start as a pattern maker and I really wasn't that great at pattern making. And in addition to being the pattern maker, you had to be a model. And I was very thin, but I, I did not have the proportions to be a model for that. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of put that the fashion design on hold, but I still continued to make all my own clothes. And I, I enjoyed that. I enjoy it still. From from everything that I have heard about it, it's a very um, cutthroat world. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that was said with feeling. <laughs> and and even in school, I found um, when I when I was going to school, quite a few of the people were either um, sons or daughters of actors or new other designers. And they were the ones that got the jobs and, and that type of, so you had to know somebody yeah. and you know, I, I didn't. So, mm. that's, <laughs> so that's, that's okay. <laughs> it's demoralizing though, isn't it? If, if you're not being judged on your talent, but you're being judged on who you know. Yeah. It, mm. it, but that, that also growing up in LA, that's the, the whole movie industry as well. And, and I, and I understand that. And, and that was okay. It, it, I thought, okay, well, maybe this means I need to go somewhere else and, mm. and just work on something else. And mm. so I did. It obviously must have given you a big appreciation for fabric and the properties of fabric though. Oh yes. I, I, I don't, I, you, I can't walk past a fabric store or, <laughs> or anything <laughs> without going going in and, and fondling. And in fact, we have a beautiful store in San Francisco called Brightex, and it is three stories of wonder. And I got to go in, and we, I was with my husband and daughter, and and Gwen was very young; she was ten, I think, at the time. And the I I just was so pleased that the gentleman greeted us when we walked through the doors, and he said, "Oh, FAO Schwartz Toy Store is just down the street." <laughs> and so he, he he told my husband how to get there, and I had I had hours to be able uh. just to look through the three stories of, of mm. wonder. So fabric on the first floor, buttons on the second floor which i had a hard time leaving that that particular floor mm. and then notions on the third so yes i oh. i love fabric strangely enough i have actually been to that store oh you have i oh, have wonderful. yes it's just off union square isn't it yes yes and yeah. um, i i remember being absolutely amazed just by the variety and 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 everything that they held I mean there was nothing that you could want that wasn't there yeah. unfortunately um we were we were on a, a long trip and uh, we had pretty much full bags by then so I had nowhere to actually um stash fabric to take it home which was possibly a good idea really <laughs> disappointing I guess yes yes <laughs> someone did say to me actually when I got home why didn't you buy it and post it to yourself and I thought 
oh, why didn't I? <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> Shoot, yes. Why did I why didn't I think of that? <laughs> well, you, shame shame on that that man that didn't or or whoever was was working with you. Too bad they didn't suggest it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Very true, yes. <laughs> But no, you're right. It was a, a wonderful store, um, a, amazing experience to go around. We don't, here in the UK, we don't really have stores at that kind of size. Um, I think possibly spaces is usually at a premium. You know, the retail stores pay a lot for their space. So to yeah. see something like that is, is, is really special. Yeah, it, it was. And, and that, I think, is probably the... I have not been to New York, and I'm sure there are places in New York that probably you and I both <laughs> yes <laughs> will would love to go and and maybe have you know the same problem a packed suitcase so we don't yes. have to buy more. <laughs> but at least we know what to do now. We post it to ourselves. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I know that uh, obviously you made that transition from um, wearable art um, into fiber art. Could you tell us a little bit how that came about? Sure. Um, I first started making wearables in, I want to say 1986. That's when I was asked to participate in the Fairfield Fashion Show. And then Fairfield uh, turned over their fashion show to Bernina. And I had started teaching wearables in, I think, 1991 it was. And then around 2000, the whole industry changed a bit. So it, they, it stopped um, really focusing on wearables and then going back into quilting and then fiber art into smaller pieces. So I, I adapted quite a few of my wearable art classes into smaller pieces. So small wall hangings, um, even into some uh, soft sculpture. So I started also into doll making at that mm -hmm. time. And that's really where it transitioned into. The doll making is a very specialist area, isn't it? Yes. Uh, we had a, a group here um, in San Diego that had some national artists in it. So our doll group, uh, had some wonderful teachers. So I learned how to paint faces and, and mine mm -hmm. are very much character. They're not um, realistic faces, but, mm -hmm. but very much character. And I, um, I, as a kid, I remember clothing all of my dolls I, before I gave them a name because I wanted to make sure <laughs> they, they had something to wear, right? <laughs> so um, I, I, that's what I enjoyed was creating, creating patterns that um, looked like clothing. So mm. that was really what the pattern was and then being able to paint the face. And I always made their hair um, different colors of yarn because mm -hmm. I always wanted to have purple hair. I mean, who wouldn't, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I, my dolls got to have fun hair. Oh, wonderful. I know that you have obviously gone on to author quite a number of books uh, and you clearly enjoy passing on your knowledge to others. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of writing the books? I know that many of our students, um, it's 
if you if, if when I speak to them it's something that that always fascinates them uh, how do you get a book deal um you know how how do you actually put a book together so could you tell us a little bit about that because I know they would love to hear sure um so first of all I never thought I had anything to share I I didn't realize <laughs> that um I had this knowledge in me and when I had my first job teaching, somebody asked me to teach and I was thinking, really? Oh, okay. And I always say, okay, before I really think the process. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I said, okay. And so I, I, um, we, we decided to um, have one class. She filled that in a week. And so we got another class going. And the first class I taught, it was all verbal because mm -hmm. I thought that the students could follow. It was a three hour class and everybody left dazed. <laughs> yes. So I thought, let's not do that again. So I wrote out a, a handout and that's basically how you, you would start a book. So you would, you would outline what you wanna talk about you would um, make sure, and, and the one thing that I find a bit of a challenge, my books are all 160 pages, mm -hmm. not 161, not 162. So it, you have to get all of that information and all of the gallery pieces and all of the how-tos into that amount of space. So that's another thing you wanna think about, how big you, how, how many pages you want your book to be and that type of thing. So the first book that I proposed to CNT Publishing was Ribbonwork Gardens. Mm -hmm. And I had an outline. I knew what I wanted to include in the book. And I took all of the how-to photography. I did that for my first three books. So offering something to them that maybe they didn't think about is another good thing to yeah. to be able to do did you did you have to um actually supply them with um an outline or um a sample from the book beforehand i believe what i did was i filled out a questionnaire they i think most publishers would have a questionnaire when you're going to propose something to them so i filled that out i did have an outline and i didn't send in physical samples, but I sent in JPEGs of, I of, of the work. And, and you may have an outline and you may have an idea of what you want to include. They are always going to have an opinion as well. So, so <laughs> <right>. <laughs> and is is it um is it an how do I put this is it an intrusive opinion? <laughs> um, well, sometimes, and you have to be able to say okay. <laughs> uh, so I, I I want to say um so the first book I wanted to call a walk through my flower garden mm -hmm. because that was the name of a garment class that I had. And it included a lot of the instructions that were going to be in the book, but they felt that title sounded more like a gardener would be interested in, you know, like it would yes. be a gardening book rather than a book on ribbon work. So I, I believe that they had the right instincts 
to, mm-hmm. to go that way. And, and if they're at this point after, I think um, it's seven books, if I have an opinion that I think is a little stronger, I, I, can, I can at least give some more comment on it. <laughs> and, yes. and we can come to an agreement for something. But both of us now have an idea of who, who the audience is and what they may be looking for. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we're trying to do is yeah. provide something for those who are here and those who are coming after us. Mm-hmm. We want to provide that information to them. And how do you actually go about putting the book together? Is it something that you have to actually lay out or do they do that? You supply the text and the images and they do the layout. How does that work? There is something that's called a, a book map and you can, and it's an Excel program where you, they'll list each of the pages. Mm-hmm. They, it, it won't be um, with the text on it, but you can see how long a chapter is going to be and if it's going to fit within the, um, the whole idea of how many pages you have. But I also know how many words per page need to be in each page because mm-hmm. you have to decide how big a picture is going to be or how many pictures there are going to be and how much text you can actually add in. So that that part is a little challenging, but um, it's something I've become an expert at. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can imagine seven books on. It, it certainly sounds like a challenge. I mean, to to keep that amount of information in your mind or and I know obviously that um, some software will help but it it's a lot isn't it it's a lot to work out it is and one nice thing um, once I once I had um, had an idea of how many stitches could fit to a page because that's really a, a, a big a big portion of my books are to include the embroidery stitches and the illustrations. So once once we had that down, we could really work on the other pieces. And and really you can pare down your wording. So you can you can pare that down so it's it's more streamlined. But one thing that I try to do when I'm writing is I try to write as if the reader is in class with me. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's an important aspect. I, I want them to feel comfortable and I want them to understand what I'm trying to pass on. And um, that's important to me. Yes, sometimes I think we've all read instructions, not necessarily books, that you're as confused by the time you get to the end of them as you were at <laughs> <Yes>. the start. <laughs> and I do try to include uh, tips and tricks, that type of thing. So I hope that people read that sort of information too before digging into the stitches. But I, I try to outline everything they're going to need to know. So mm-hmm. always there's materials, always how to use those materials and, you know, thread length, needles, that type of thing. Yes, right right from the, the basics, so to speak, yes. everything that, that someone might need to ask. Yes, when you you were obviously talking about having gallery spaces within them, is that always your work, or is it sometimes students' work as well? 
Um, on my, I believe my second book, I had a friend who actually was a student before, before we became friends. And she had a piece in there because she helped me do some of the editing. So that mm -hmm. was nice. And then in the last book that I just wrote, I have a friend that's also written a book and she teaches. She and her her friend have have gallery pieces in the book. Mm -hmm. Normally it's just my work, but it was nice to include theirs because they they helped me with a uh, some of the ideas that we used in the what's in your stash chapter. And that's where we talk about the, or I talk about the uh, vintage items you might find. So I yeah. had a lot of their input and I, I felt that it was special to put their pieces in. Yeah, and I, I'm sure that obviously that was lovely for them to be able to yeah. see their pieces <laughs> in print. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was. Do you, um, when you start to plan, do you have an idea of the number of, uh, I'm going to say projects that you'll include? Yes, that's part of the outline. So you, mm -hmm. um, and it's also part of, I guess, the mission of the book, what, mm -hmm. what you want to teach them, what you, what you want to be able to show them what they can do with their things. And I think another important thing is to be able to offer projects for all levels. Yes. So my work has a tendency to be at a level where the student needs to be either at least intermediate and sometimes advanced. And mm -hmm. I don't want to discourage anybody. So I want to be able to provide some beginning projects as well as some intermediate and advanced. And another thing that I try to also um, explain I, when I first started teaching, I had those labels on my classes. This is a beginning, intermediate, or advanced. And mm -hmm. often in the intermediate and advanced class, I'd get a beginner who felt that she was a beginner crocheter. So of course she would be a beginner embroiderer. Yes. And that was not the case. So it, it's being able to explain what you what you need to have before you're able to work on this project. Otherwise, people get disappointed and they think, well, this isn't a good book or this isn't a good teacher. I didn't I wasn't able to make that piece. Mm -hmm. So you don't want them to be disappointed. That's the main thing. We do have that problem with our students, you know, trying to try to help them decide whether they're um, maybe coming in at a, a beginner's level, a skill stage two, a skill stage four. Um, and people can have very different views about uh, if they want to push themselves with a course. Some people will always want to go out of their comfort zone and push for the next level. Some will always want to stay within it and feel that they don't want to push themselves too hard. So it is difficult trying to help people understand what level they're already at. Yes. And in I think in your situation, you have a little bit more time to talk to them. But when you're in a three-hour or a six-hour class and you oh, have yeah. other students, it, it can be a little bit of a challenge. And I think both you and I would, and, and all of your teachers would want that person to do their best and, and have the best time so that mm. it, it can be a challenge. And, and it's a challenge for the person as well, not to realize that, oh, 
oops yes yes (laughs) yes absolutely I I mean I suppose that looking at some of the um, embroidery books that are out there over a long long period of time some decide that they're going to just do beginners projects others decide that they're just going to cover advanced techniques I like the way that you've described mixing them because it gives people that ability to step up or step down doesn't it yes yes and then and like I said everybody's happy (laughs) yes yes hopefully yes so um we touched briefly before on the pandemic which is obviously over the last what nearly three years is it now yes Yes. it's really affected all of our lives in lots of different ways were you very productive during that time did you do different things how how did how did you use that that time that I think most of us had because we were having to stay at home a lot more well for me I believe the pandemic started when I was just working on the projects for this book Ah. so throughout the whole pandemic I had either I was creating, writing, or editing. And we didn't talk about that particular part when we were talking about writing a book. The editing editing process could take a whole entire year. Hmm. So just depending on how long your book is. So I, I was fortunate that I was needed to be home anyway so mm. so i was able able to work on that but i think it was it was scary for everyone so yeah. it was i i don't want to say i benefited from it because the, that's not really a, a no. positive thing but i was able to work at home and that was i think i think many creative people actually did i know it sounds an odd thing to say benefit but i think by having less distractions, obviously, and, and having yes. to spend more time at home. I think many people found that they were very productive during that time. Um, everyone will have a different experience, of course. But So uh, you're absolutely right. We didn't touch on the editing process. And, and actually, I, I did wonder, do you edit your own books or does somebody from the publisher then step in and edit them? How does that work? Uh, I have to edit it to at certain stages of um, the process. So there's a, there's a first draft and then there's a final draft and those are mine and I edit there mm-hmm. and then they start editing. And the editing could be anywhere from, oh, let's just switch these words around or it's let's get the directions to to be a little bit more understandable (laughs) when i get an editor that's that's either adding words and i'm like no you can't add any more words to that page because (laughs) we could only have that many words there but it always seems to work out so so in order to pass it on to them i do do the editing but again there's there's many stages of editing and many um many other editors that that get involved in the book Mm. so just as a a rough idea how long does it take you from sort of originating an idea for a book to the book actually being available for um purchase it's probably about three years oh wow that is so that's a long time yeah (laughs) so when um it depends on when you turn in your um, proposal, that could take anywhere from three to six weeks. 
mm-hmm. to get an answer back, right? So, so that there, there's that process. Then, uh, then, then you're going to talk to um, an editor that is an acquisitions editor. If if you in fact do get um, approved, and then you details from the outline that you've turned in. And then you de- then you decide when you want the so we work backwards when you want the book to be published, then you work back to see when the dates are that you need to turn things in. So because my pieces are so involved, that's why it probably takes me a little bit longer because I need at least a year to create the pieces that mm. go into the book. The writing is not um, as time consuming as it was in the beginning uh, because of, of, because my first three books, I was doing a lot of directions. And now mm-hmm. that I've got all of those directions down, then I can just add to them or and use those already, you know, already used directions. I know that they're going to work. We obviously now get a lot of books via a, 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 a digital download, right? A Kindle or yes. something. Is that a feasible thing to do with an embroidery book? My all available as eBooks. Ah, so is okay. that what you're? It is. Yes. It yes. Is. Okay. Mm-hmm. I. I think, though, um, when my students bring an ebook to class, so my book as an ebook rather as a paperback, mm. what can happen depending on how big the device is, you might not be able to see all of the instructions in the page. Yeah. And the other thing that I found were the page numbers weren't always the same. Oh, it, in, yeah, it will differ with the size of text and everything. Right. Won't it? Mm. So, so that was a problem in the beginning. I, when you download um, a book on your computer and you've got, um, you're working with the Acrobat, right? Mm-hmm. Program, all of the page numbers should match just mm-hmm. as they would in a, in a hardback or a paperback. Yeah. But I don't, I can't say for certain that they would on a smaller device. Mm. And I suppose all because so much of the, the books will be images, that's going to make them quite large, isn't it? You know, from a yes. file size point of view. Right. And you can't, and I don't think you can see all of the details quite as well on, on a smaller device. But I, I think if you understand that and you're willing to say, okay, but at least I have, I can have this book because it's a lot less expensive. Mm. to go in the ebook form and and it's immediate as well isn't it yes <laughs> you if you just can't <laughs> if you just can't wait for the mail to come <laughs> and i think that satisfies another yes <laughs> another thing you get it right away <laughs> yeah absolutely so what's next Kristen, what what have you got planned for ne- for for the next thing? Have you got exhibitions or a, a new book that you could tell us a little about? Well, I I have a new book that I can't tell you anything about. <laughs> oh, okay, you're sworn, sworn to secrecy. <laughs> yes, uh, but in the future, um, I have a book that is all on hand embroidery using pearl cotton and cotton floss. Mm-hmm. And that's the hand embroidery dictionary. And there are 500 plus stitches. There are actually over 700 stitches with the variations. Mm-hmm. But I'd like, and then I have a book on beaded embroidery. 
but I would like to have a book that focuses on raised and textured stitches. I've, I've used um, some of those stitches in, in my projects and the one book, the embroidery book includes them, but I'd like to get more involved in, you can add uh, a tatted stitch that's you're actually using a needle and thread and, and stitching it onto the fabric. And I'd like to include more cast on and bouillon stitches. So that's a, a future thought. Um, but right now, I think we were talking earlier about not being tech savvy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I've had to be kickstarted to this century <laughs> quite quickly. I, I have, a, I have a, a video lecture and class on CD Publishing's online learning platform called Upcycle It with Embellishments. And it's basically taking um, thrift store finds and creating them into something new and um, something that you would wear. Hmm. So with that uh, in mind, I am going to be um, videoing uh, some classes on embroidery and I we're going to start with beaded embroidery. So in the next couple months, hopefully, hmm. there will be some classes in that. So. Um, that's good too, because now I'm learning. So I appreciate mm. that. And how are you finding the being on on the uh, on on the the sort of end of the uh, the wrong end of the video camera? Should I say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, I prefer well um, hmm, because it's uh, most of these are going to be close ups on my hands. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm okay with though. I'm thinking, oh, those hands do look sixty seven years old. <laughs> 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 but I, I'm hoping that that's just a byproduct of of the class. But when I'm I, when I'm actually being videoed myself, I, I think, oh, I just can't wait till it's over. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm not too keen. I must admit we, we do, we have at various times done quite a number of videos and um, we often have just a full day at it, you know, where, where we do nothing but record and they're, they're really long, hard days yes um I don't know if you found them that way but I found them really they take a lot out of you and and everyone else that's involved as well yes the um I had to uh drive up to Concord to shoot some of the video for for that lecture and I had just I I had had surgery on my foot and I was just at the point where I could walk on it mm. and we had a 15-hour day <laughs> oh, yeah, shooting the videos. And I thought, okay, this could be over. <laughs> Where's that glass of wine? <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. yes, I know that feeling really well. And um, that's actually one of the reasons I love doing the podcasts, because it's much more immediate. And I think because you're not actually, you're not on video. I know we had that discussion before yes. we before we spoke today. Oh, you know, we're going to have to be on, on video. But because we don't actually do that, it's it's a, a more relaxed atmosphere. It is. It's a more relaxed chat. Whereas yes. um you're always wondering which side you're showing to the camera of the video. <laughs> and I always um worry that I'm not looking at the camera, I'm looking at the screen. So yeah. you're not seeing I yes. I yes <laughs> it's tough it, it is tough you, you as a as a teacher obviously vid, being the one that that's actually being um recorded 
looking into the camera, but also perhaps having another camera on your actually on your hands as you're trying to um, to, to demonstrate something. It's really hard. It's hard to concentrate and it's yes. hard to be looking in the right place, saying the right thing. Yes. I find. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. Other no, people I... seem to cope better. but uh... <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so so that's under, so there's a top secret book coming out that we, yes. <laughs> do you have any idea of when, when it will be available for purchase? It will be available in uh, 2025. Okay. So we've got a little way to go yet. Yes. And um, as we're obviously, I, I know, nearing the end of, of, of this um, chat that we've had, do you have sort of a short story or a little anecdote that you could perhaps finish off the interview with? Yes. Um, so my advice is to be true to yourself. Mm -hmm. After one of my lectures on wearables, I had a lady come up to me and and she looked at the vest I was wearing and she said, the vest was so well constructed and beautiful. Why did you junk it up with all that stuff? Oh. <laughs> and I presumed she meant the embellishments because mm -hmm. that's, that's really something I like to do. And I went home and I removed all the junk. Mm -hmm. And I looked at the vest and I thought she was correct. It was beautiful without the junk, but it wasn't me. So uh, my advice is to do what makes you happy and put the junk back on. Yes. Well, I know with our students that um, particularly when they start studying with us, and I'm sure you've probably found this um, as well with your own students, that they can be very uncertain sometimes. And it only takes a chance remark by somebody um, to really knock their confidence. Yes. And... At the end of the day, uh, it depends what sort of person they are um, and how, how high their confidence was anyway as to how easily they recover from that. Um, sometimes I speak to students who have an absolute horror of designing their own uh, patterns or, um, you know, embroideries. And that come back from perhaps something that happened in art class you know when yes. they were uh, in in primary school um, yes. some remark chance remark that the teacher made about them you know not being very good or uh, and and it's amazing how some of those remarks do stick i think perhaps in life we could all all do with just remembering that sometimes and trying if we can't say anything good to perhaps not say anything at all <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think there are some people that need a class on that <laughs> yes yes I'm sure there are particularly at the moment because well now we have so much social media don't we so yes everyone's sharing everything and um it all goes really well until someone says something that's perhaps intended to be um, helpful, but actually comes over as a little negative. Yes. And, and that's where things can sometimes, yeah, it can, it can be very upsetting if something that you thought you'd made a fabulous job of, um, unfortunately, someone else doesn't. But um, it has been absolutely lovely. Thank you so much Hello. for speaking to me today. I have so enjoyed um actually hearing more about you and the process i do hope you don't feel i went on about it too much but the process of, of um 
you your books and um, the time that it takes has just been absolutely fascinating. And no, I, I I appreciate your questions about the book because it is kind of confusing to people. I think you know how how does this all work? But there is a lot of input from you as you pretty much as the author. It's all on you, really, mm. and it, you really have to provide everything, and you know to be able to to do this. And I don't mean just the photography, but I mean. You know, oh, all the origination, have, yes, yes. All, all the ideas and everything are coming from yes. you, aren't they? Do yes. you do you find it hard? Do you ever? I mean, obviously, three years is a long time to maintain uh, focus over one single project in that way. Do you ever get part way through and think, "I don't want to do this"? <laughs> oh yes, especially when it's the editing time. <laughs> uh -huh. oh, that's the worst part, is it? <laughs> When when you're on a, a two week uh, a two week uh, deadline and you've got to edit something and you start looking at it and you think oh my goodness we're in trouble mm. but there's always uh, there's always a, a safe line I guess you can say and say it's not working I need a little bit more time yeah. but I think the editing is the most stressful is yeah. to, because you've got that deadline and get it done mm. other than that um, once once I start once I finish all of the pieces that are for the project or for the book, I mean, and then I'm just working on the computer and, and working on the text, I'll be starting the next book. So mm -hmm. I'm not, or the next thing I'm not, there isn't, yeah. I won't get bored because I've got something else going on. So there's an element of overlap between them as well. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, I think probably it's a good idea for all of us, really, whatever we're doing, to have something that when one project gets on top of you, you can just put it to one side, get on with something else for a little while and then return to it with fresh eyes. Yes, good, well spoken. Thank you so much for that. Thank you, Gail. And, and I, I, I enjoyed speaking with you as well.